Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. During the rule of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. They were both righteous before God, blameless in their observance of all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to become pregnant, and they were both very old. One day Zechariah was serving as a priest before God because his priestly division was on duty. Following the customs of priestly service, he was chosen by lottery to go to the Lord's sanctuary and burn incense. All the people who gathered to worship were praying outside during this hour of incense offering. An angel from the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw the angel, he was startled and overcome with fear. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will give birth to your son, and you must name him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many people will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the Lord's eyes. He must not drink wine and liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will bring many Israelites back to the Lord their God. He will go forth before the Lord, equipped with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, and he will turn the disobedient to righteous patterns of thinking. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? My wife and I are very old. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in God's presence. I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news to you. Know this, what I have spoken will come true at the proper time. But because you didn't believe, you will remain silent, unable to speak until the day when these things happen. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered why he was in the sanctuary for such a long time. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he gestured to them and couldn't speak. When he completed the days of his priestly service, he returned home. Afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. She kept to herself for five months, saying, This is the Lord's doing. He has shown his favor to me by removing my disgrace among other people. Don't be afraid. It's the angelic understatement that recurs throughout the stories of Jesus' birth, and it's offered in the midst of what is probably one of the most terrifying moments in its recipients' lives. Here it's offered to Zechariah, an elderly priest and soon-to-be father of John the Baptizer. In other texts, it is offered to Mary, a young virgin who is probably about to face the condemnation of her community when they find out that she is pregnant. Or Joseph, Mary's betrothed, who's attempting to reconcile the apparent infidelity of his fiancée against the explanations that she has offered to him. Or the shepherds, who are just minding their own business on a nearby hillside. 
Over the next four weeks, I want to spend some time with this statement as we reflect and wait during an Advent season for the ages. Undoubtedly, I've been drawn to this statement because we've all heard a great deal about fear recently. More specifically, we've been forced to consider whether we are living in fear or living in faith. Uh, We've been forced to consider how our commitments to serving Jesus should impact the choices that we make in the world around us. Now, if Facebook is judged, the true test of our faith is whether or not we are leaving our homes, or whether or not we're wearing our masks in public, or whether or not we are participating in our family celebrations that may skirt around CDC and statewide guidelines. For months, we've been encouraged to not live in fear, which for many means choosing to live our lives undeterred. Now, I'm not a scientist. I'm certainly not an epidemiologist or a public health specialist. I'm a pastor. And maybe it's for that reason that I would argue that the texts that we'll be looking at have absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with living in the midst of a global health crisis. Admittedly, we're all a touch subjective when we approach the Bible, and perhaps I've reached this conclusion because I wear a mask when I go out in public, or because I I try my best to follow the guidance set forth by health professionals. But also, at a more rudimentary level, I think our culture's proposed metric of what living in faith entails, it seems very wrong-headed. Okay, now if I've lost you, if if that's too political, I apologize. Please stick with me for this because this is more my point. I think that we've largely reduced our fears. They go well beyond the bounds of how we are treating COVID. They go well beyond how we celebrated or didn't celebrate Thanksgiving on Thursday. They go well beyond how we choose to love our neighbor. They go well beyond the simplistic metric of our public life and what strangers can see on our faces or not. We have other fears, right? Fears that predate COVID. Fears that have been with us for years. Fears that have impacted our lives, maybe in more subtle ways. The fear of failure. The fear of of unimportance, of living an inconsequential life, the fear of floundering, wasting time, of waking up one day and being 39 or 59 or 79 and not really knowing what to show for it, the fear of exclusion. We've been made aware recently of the fear of missing out, colloquially referred to as FOMO in our culture. There's a fear that our grief will destroy us, that we can't rebound from the losses that we have suffered. The fear of never being happy, of being alone, of being unfulfilled. In the story of Zechariah, the command not to fear is uttered because he's rightly terrified of the angelic manifestation of Gabriel, who has unexpectedly stared him in the face in this moment. But the author hints that Zechariah has other fears as well, fears like ours that, that predate his circumstances, 
fears that predate, fancy word coming here, brace yourselves, Zechariah's angelophony. Luke 1.5 begins the story in this way. During the rule of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was a descendant of Aaron. This is sort of important background information. These are both priestly characters. Now, for a priest, he could marry outside of the priestly line, but Zechariah doesn't. In verse 6, it says, They were both righteous before God, blameless in their observance of all the Lord's commandments and, and regulations. Then in verse 7, we come to a line that doesn't make sense given what we've just heard. It says, They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to become pregnant and they were both very old. This is a problem for Zechariah. And this is a, a potent introduction to the story that unfolds in the verses that follow. To fully understand it, we need to set ourselves firmly within a first century Jewish context. I know you're excited. Childbirth was seen at this time as a divine blessing. It still is, but in a different way. It's one that Joel Green notes was a source of honor within the community. Childlessness, in contrast, was a source of shame. In fact, it was often viewed as a direct response to the moral character of the participants. If a couple was not blessed with a child, it signaled to the wider community around maybe that there was some blight upon their character that had resulted in a divine punishment. For example, in the Torah, Deuteronomy 28 says, But if you don't obey the Lord your God's voice by carefully doing all His commandments and all His regulations that I'm commanding you right now, all of these curses will come upon you and find you. And then in verse 18 it says, Your own fertility, your soil's produce, your cattle's young and your flock's offspring, they will be cursed. For a priest, this would have been a massive mark of shame to be childless, and for his wife, even more so. Now, clearly, this is before the medical advances that we now know and that we now take for granted. It was also before it was even considered that the man might be the cause of a couple's infertility. The woman alone was to blame in a first century Jewish context. And when Gabriel appears, he says, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, understatement of the year. Your prayers have been heard. He continues, Your wife Elizabeth will give birth to your son, and you must name him John. This is weird. Clearly, Zechariah's fear in the story world of Luke 1 was due to the presence of the angel. Luke says as much. And we get it. I mean, imagine the scene. It would be completely terrifying. But the angel links the fear to Zechariah's prayers, as if his real underlying fear goes well beyond the angel standing before him. Don't be afraid, Gabriel says. We hear you. It's okay. For most readers, this is weird too, because as far as we know, Zechariah has not prayed for anything. We can probably assume that he has prayed for a son at some point in his life because of the culture in which he lived and because of what 
Gabriel is saying here, but it's not stated in the story. Now, in contrast, the entire ceremony in which he is participating was one couched in different forms of prayer. Each day, the priests would burn incense before the morning and after the evening sacrifice. There's an equation between the burning of incense and prayer that is happening where most people would believe that with the burning of incense would come prayer. Also, a congregation of people were gathering outside of the temple to observe the ritual, not with their own eyes, but be a part of it as they waited for the priests to come out of the temple. They would, they would gather and they would pray as all of these rituals were happening in the temple where they could not go. When the ceremony was over, when the incense had been lit, the priests involved would gather on the steps of the temple and they would offer the people this familiar blessing. The Lord bless you and protect you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his face to you and grant you peace. Prayer was happening by the priests, by the people, uh, as a blessing, but it was bigger than just Zechariah and his personal needs. Still, Gabriel says, don't be afraid. We hear you. We've heard your prayer. They've been answered. It's okay. And this adds an important layer to the story. Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers were not disconnected from the prayers of the people. A, a people who we shouldn't forget were in oppression who were waiting for God to move, who may have been losing faith that it would ever actually happen, who may have been afraid that they've been forgotten. There's one more piece of background information that I think adds some important layers to this story. The priesthood was divided into 24 orders or courses. Each order would serve two weeks per year on a rotating basis. Zechariah was one of approximately 18,000 priests. As Luke notes, he was chosen by lottery in our translation, or by lot in other translations. He was chosen by lot to go into the Lord's sanctuary and burn incense. This would have been the highlight of anyone's priestly career. First, it represents the closest a priest could get to the symbolic presence of God, other than the Day of Atonement when one priest would go into the Holy of Holies. For other priests, they would only be able to enter into the holy place, which is where Zechariah is going to burn incense. And two, it was literally a once-in-a-lifetime moment. Due to such a large number of priests, you were only permitted to serve in this capacity once in your lifetime, and then you were taken off for eligibility in receiving the lot. And it's in this moment that God, through his messenger Gabriel, says, Zechariah, it's time. We've heard you, and we've, we've heard the people too, and, and we've got work to do. Your boy, he will be a joy and delight to you. And many people will rejoice 
at his birth, for he will be great in the Lord's eyes. He must not drink wine and liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will bring many Israelites back to the Lord their God. He will go before the Lord, equipped with the spirit and the power of Elijah. This is tapping into some Old Testament prophetic texts, uh, namely in Malachi, where people were looking for a uh, resurrected Elijah or an Elijah-type figure to usher in these last days. He will turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, and he will turn the disobedient to righteous patterns of thinking. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In Gabriel's message is the answer to two different prayers, that of Zechariah and Elizabeth for a child and those of the people to move them beyond oppression and servitude. There's a combining of Zechariah's desires and the desires of the people for Zechariah's son would initiate the move of God to right the world, to bring redemption to God's people, to announce the coming and prepare the way for the Messiah. This is all clarified for us in Zechariah's song after the birth of John. He sings, You, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way. You will tell his people how to be saved through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's deep compassion, the dawn from heaven will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in darkness and in shadow of death to guide us on the path of peace. At the core of this story is a surprise. A surprise that old people can have kids. A surprise that God is present and invested and still moving. A surprise that prayers have been heard. Prayers maybe that have been uh, provided for years and years and years with no answer. A surprise that there is nothing to fear. Not just the angel standing before Zechariah or his unfulfilled hopes and dreams. There is nothing at all to fear. So what is your fear? In this Advent season that is notably different than other Advent seasons in our past, what prayers have you been offering that are all but given up on? You see, to reduce living in faith to not wearing a mask is, is silly. With or without it, we are influenced by other, deeper fears. It's my hope that over the next few weeks, as we consider these stories all around this concept of not fearing, as we revel in the move of God in our past, that we might gain encouragement that comes from the divine command, do not fear. These Christmas stories, they're, they're only the beginning. They are only signposts along the way, marking a path where we now walk without fear, fueled by the great hope that our God is still on the move. I'm hopeful that as we hear these familiar stories again and again, that we can begin to ask 
more poignant questions of ourselves, of our situations, and of the God that we trust. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel.